passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, I want to start this morning uh, with a, a story. Uh, it's probably one that, that many of you can relate to. Uh, it took place last Tuesday night. And, and so uh, last Tuesday night, Crystal and I were getting ready for bed. And uh, I pulled out my phone like I usually do to set the alarm on it. Uh, set it for 5 a.m. That, that's pretty typical for me. And uh, went to bed. Uh, again, pretty, pretty typical Tuesday night. In the middle of the night, Crystal got up a couple times to take care of Silas, and I, I tried to be the, the dutiful husband and, and got up once or twice with her. And, and every time I'd get up in the middle of the night, I'd check my watch, and, and I'd just, you know, inwardly groan because 5 a.m. was a little too close uh, for my liking. Sure enough, Wednesday morning, 5 a.m., rolls around, and my alarm goes off. And like any normal person, I shut my alarm off and just laid there. And while I was laying there, I had this internal debate. Uh, There was just a full-on debate going on in my head as I was laying there. Uh, One side of me was saying, get get up, Jordan. It's time for you to get up. Your alarm went off. There's things you need to do. You have a meeting at 8.30. You want to get a lot of work done before that meeting, so it's time for you to get up. And the other side of me just said, yeah, but sleep. The other side responded, I know, Jordan, but the reality is you're never going to get back to sleep. You know this. You've tried it before. You're not going to get the same quality of sleep because your alarm already went off. Just go ahead, get up, and get in the shower. Then you'll be awake. It's time to start your day. To which the other side replied, yeah, but sleep. And just, just want to clarify, in case you think I'm absolutely crazy, this was going on in my head. Uh, It it wasn't something that I was actually having this conversation with me. Uh, But how many of you can guess which side won that argument? Yeah, the the one with the more compelling argument, sleep, actually, absolutely won. And and I'm I'm sure that some of you can probably relate to this. I'm not talking to you in here who are the most disciplined people on the planet, the people who haven't slept in since they stopped taking naps in kindergarten. That's not who I'm referring to right now. I'm referring to every single other person in here who goes through this same type of debate. Uh, It's a debate between reason and between desire. See, we can recognize that we're not going to get the same amount of sleep or the same quality of sleep after we hit the snooze button as we would have before. We can recognize that it's actually not good for us to hit the snooze button, but we choose to do it anyway. Ever wonder why? Well, plain and simple, it's because we we want what makes us feel good. We, We like desire. We, we may rationally understand these kind of arguments, but, but the more compelling side of things is we want things that make us feel good, or, or at least that we think are going to make us feel good. And you might be wondering, Jordan, what on earth does sleep have to do with our discussion this morning? I think that this story serves as a little bit of a picture, a little bit of a glimpse of one of our culture's biggest values. And that value is pleasure above everything else. See, we live in a culture of physical hedonism. We live in a culture that we want what makes us feel good. 
We can recognize that it might not be the best thing for us, but that doesn't really matter because we want what makes us feel good. That rarely stops us. The rational arguments rarely stop us. We live in a culture where cohabitation is normal. We live in a culture where premarital sex is not only normal, but it's almost unthinkable in our culture's eyes to not engage in that type of activity. We live in a context where pornography is a multi-billion dollar industry. This is the culture we find ourselves in. It's a culture that says, do what makes you feel good. Embrace what you want. Do whatever is necessary to make yourself feel good. Friends, this is the cultural atmosphere that we breathe in each and every day. And the reality is this atmosphere is toxic. But there's good news for us. The good news is that the call of the gospel is a breath of fresh air. The call of the gospel is good news. It tells us to live differently. It tells us to shine brightly in the midst of the darkness surrounding us. And it is this call of the gospel that Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 through 20. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open up to this passage. This is what we're going to be exploring together this morning. It's also printed in your sermon notes as well as going to be on the screen behind me. So please follow along as I read aloud, starting in verse 12. It says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach, and the stomach for food. And God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will raise us also up up, up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But sexual immorality a person commits uh, uh, sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. I love how Paul closes here. Those three crucial phrases. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. These words serve as an antidote for us in the midst of our toxic culture. 
tells us what God says rather than what our culture says. As our culture tells us that we should just gratify our physical desires, Paul says you are not your own. You have been bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. Here at Crosswinds, as you are probably aware, we're in the middle of a four-week series, just a brief four-week series, looking at some of the most hot-button topics today in our culture. But before we started jumping into some of these discussions, like next week we're going to look at homosexuality, uh, we decided to lay the foundation. And this foundation is our view of Scripture. It is our view of the Bible. See, we believe here at Crosswinds that the Bible is God's word for us today, and we will take it at its word. God's word has the final say in our lives, even when we don't like what it has to say, which, because we're sinful people, oftentimes happens a little more than we would like. And when we realize this, that, that we must take what the Bible says, we begin to realize that the discussions in our culture aren't really about what the Bible says. They're really about what we say about the Bible. Is the Bible trustworthy? Is the Bible really God's word? Is the Bible actually relevant for us today? Should it actually be obeyed? What we saw last week is a resounding yes. God's word has the final say in our lives. And because of that, that's the foundation that we build upon this morning. We cling to the words of scripture like a life raft in the middle of a chaotic ocean. We take what God has to say and we trust it and try to obey it. That's where this phrase bought with a price comes into our discussion and forms the way that we look at this discussion today. But you might be wondering, well, what exactly does it mean? What are some of the implications of being bought with a price? We understand that it has something to do with sexual immorality because that's what Paul is talking about here. But what's that connection? How does it apply for us today? I think this passage here, 1 Corinthians 6, gives us at least six key implications of the fact that we have been bought we were bought with a price. So that's what we're going to explore this morning as we look at this topic. We're going to look at how us being bought with a price influences the ways that we approach a sexual ethic as Christians today. So let's go ahead and jump into that. The first one is this. We are no longer ruled by our appetites. We are no longer ruled by our appetites. Take a look at verses 12 and the beginning of verse 13. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be enslaved by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. We live in a culture today that, that prides itself on being pretty advanced. And in one sense, that's true. We have made it to the moon. Uh, we have the ability uh, today through technology to be able to communicate with essentially anyone, essentially anywhere on the face of the planet, essentially in a, uh, instantly. We live in a place where uh, medical advancements have uh, put to rest some of the diseases that, that often wrought havoc on humanity just a couple centuries ago. So we live in a place where we are pretty advanced. 
And yet at the same time, there are parts of our culture that really aren't all that advanced. Paul wrote to the church in Corinth here in the first century in the midst of a context that was extremely sexually charged. It was a a group of people, the Romans were, who said, if you have a desire, you should fulfill it. It was completely normal for people in Roman culture to sleep with a prostitute because you had to fulfill your appetites. In fact, there were actually Roman philosophers who said that prostitutes were a good thing because they kept the adultery rates down. Why don't you just think about how ridiculous that is for a moment. It was a physical culture. It was a culture that if you had a desire, you would satisfy it. If you had an itch, you would scratch it. And this was completely normal for those people. It's really not all that different from our context today. If you were to ask someone why they uh, sleep together before marriage or why they have an affair, they might respond with, uh, well, we love each other, uh, whatever that means in that context. But If you get to the root cause or the root reason behind those things, they'll say, well, why not? It feels good. We enjoy it. We want what we want. And so we seek after that. As you can see, our advanced culture really isn't all that advanced. And so we pick up in Paul's argument here. And Paul is arguing against the exact same thing. Apparently, there were some in the church in Corinth who were advocating for a licentious lifestyle as Christians. And their reasoning was that we have freedom in Christ. That we are now free because of what Christ has done for us. That's why Paul uh, has this first part of this verse in quotations. He's quoting their argument when it says, All things are lawful for me. These people were saying, well, I have freedom in Christ. And because I have freedom in Christ, I can do what I want. After all, the body that I am in is going to perish. God only cares about my spirit and about my soul. So I can do whatever I want because I am free in Jesus. There are other people who are saying somewhat similar things. And this is the beginning of verse 13 where it says, the stom- food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. This was another argument that people were using. They're saying, hey, listen, Paul, you know, food is meant for the stomach. Stomach is meant for food. They go together like PB&J, like Romeo and Juliet. And in the same way that you've got to fulfill those appetites, there are certain body parts that just go together naturally. It's a euphemism that the people were using to advocate or to uh, argue for their position of a sexually immoral lifestyle. You can probably guess it's a very simplistic viewpoint, very simplistic way of looking at the world. And Paul tells them the big problem that they can't see. They're not free at all. They're slaves to their sexual appetite. They are slaves to their desires. The great irony facing the church in Corinth and honestly facing our culture today is that people think that they have sexual freedom. They think that because they can do whatever they want with whoever they want, whenever they want, they are free. The great irony is that they are actually enslaved. They are slaves to their lust and desires. They can't control their appetite. Their appetite controls them. And so Paul writes these words. 
saying that we must not be slaves to our appetites. There must not be anything that controls us. After all, would you consider someone who has a constant need to eat, would you consider that person free? Or someone who has a constant need to be on their phone, would you consider that person to be free? Or someone who has a constant need to be consuming TV or other forms of media on the internet, would you consider that person to be free? Absolutely not. And Paul is saying the exact same thing here. People are enslaved to their sexual desires. And so he asks, do those control you? Are you controlled by your sexual desires, your sexual appetite, or does it control you? Paul reminds us that we are no longer ruled by that appetite. And that's easy for us to say. Uh, It's really tough for us to live out. I, I get that. And if you're struggling with this idea of saying, you know, Jordan, I I recognize as a Christian that I shouldn't be enslaved to this, but I am. Uh, I I understand how how difficult that can be. And it's not just uh, sexual topics, but it's, it's anything. If you're enslaved to anything, it can be difficult to break free from those chains. And so just two thoughts on ways to free yourself from those chains. First of all, lose your appetite for sin lose your appetite for sin. Tim Keller is a pastor in in New York. He says the only way for us to defeat idolatry in our lives is to worship something greater. In the exact same way, the only way for us to defeat these appetites in our lives is to desire something greater, to desire God himself. If you want to be free, then seek after God. Desire him. The key to rooting out this sin is not to root it out at all, but it's to replace it with a passion for God. So that's the first part. The second part is to resist your appetite for sin. This is the other side of the coin. While we recognize that our desires for these things die when we seek after God, we also recognize that it's going to be a battle. It's going to be a fight for us to seek after God because we still desire these things. I don't think there's any greater way for us to to accomplish this than through fasting. There is a connection between our physical appetite and with our appetite or our needs or our addictions to other things. When we fast from food, when we say no to a basic need in our lives, It begins to teach us that we can say no to other things in our lives. We can say no to our addiction to pornography. We can say no to our need for our cell phones, if that's some of the thing that you struggle with. I love the way that John Piper describes this in his book, Hunger for God. He says this, half of Christian fasting is our appetite is lost because our desire for God is so intense. The other half is that our desire for God is threatened because of our appetites that are so intense. In the first half, appetite is lost. In the second half, appetite is resisted. In the first, we yield to the higher hunger that is. In the second, we fight for the higher hunger that isn't. Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God, but, and I love this quote right here, it is a chosen weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. God has given us fasting as a chosen weapon 
against every force in the world that would take away our joy, our desire, our satisfaction in God himself. And so if you find yourself in a place where, where your appetite rules you, I urge you, consider to fast. Consider fasting to kill your physical appetite so that you can rein in and control other appetites in your life. Friends, you've been bought with a price, and because you are bought with a price, you are no longer controlled by your appetites. Second thing Paul mentions is that our bodies were made for the Lord. Take a look at the end of verse 13. He says, the body is meant for, the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. I think a lot of times we have a tendency to think of our spirituality as something that's detached from the physical, something that just kind of neglects the physical. We might recognize that there's a connection there somehow, but we don't fully understand it. But the Bible reminds us that there isn't a clear division between flesh and spirit. Our bodies are just as spiritual in God's eyes as our minds are and as our hearts are. God cares just as much about our physical bodies as he does about our souls and our spirit. That's what Paul is arguing here. Why does God want us to die to elicit desire? It's because he cares about our bodies. He cares about our bodies. If he didn't care about our bodies, then he probably would have just said, you know what, it is what it is. It's not really harming your soul, and that's all that really matters. So just do what you want to do. It's going to be burned up anyway. But that's not what he says. He says the body is made for the Lord. And this gets at a, an important thing to, to look at, and that is just sexuality in general. Why did God create sex? What, what, is, what is the big deal with all of this? And so let's just take a, a look at God's original plan for sexuality. Uh, have you ever wondered why God made sex? Ever wondered why God made us sexual beings? After all, God very easily could have ripped apart uh, procreation and uh, our desires. He didn't have to put those things together, but he did. Why is that? I think the, the answer, it's going to sound weird, uh, but, but I want you to just hear me out before, before you dismiss this. I think the reason why is because God created sex, just like everything else, to ultimately point to him. God created sex to point to him, to point people to him. All of creation does that. Sex is the exact same thing. Now, let me, let me explain this. Sex is the most intimate, uh, most vulnerable uh, relationship between a husband and wife. And as we look at Scripture, as we look at the Bible, we see that two become one. Actually, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2 in this passage that tells us that very thing. They are united together. A husband and wife become one flesh. You might be saying, well, how does that connect to God? That's what Ephesians chapter 5 tells us. Take a, take a look at verse, or chapter 5. It says this, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. 
Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Why did God create marriage? We see from this passage that God created marriage to show us the way he loves his church, to show us the way he loves his bride. God created marriage to point us to him. But notice what else Paul says. Here in this passage, he doesn't just say it's marriage that points us to God. He quotes Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, which is a passage that's talking about sex when it talks about two becoming one flesh. Right after that, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul is arguing that the union that we see between a husband and his wife is to point us to the great union that we as Christians have with Jesus. It doesn't say that this is a physical union. Here in 1 Corinthians 6, in a few verses, he tells us that that this is a spiritual union. but But he uses this to point to the inseparable nature of our union with Christ in the exact same way that two become one, so also our union with Christ cannot be broken. I'm gonna just be honest with you. First time I heard this, someone explained this to me, I was a little weirded out. I was kind of uncomfortable as I heard this because I'm all for thinking of marriage in general as a parable that tells us about the love of God for his church. I think that that's a beautiful picture. But I was a little uncomfortable going a little deeper than that because I don't think I had a high enough view of sex. I didn't think that sex could be used by God for anything to point us to him. But God doesn't have a low view of sex. He has a very high one. He created it. He created it good. And he created it to point us to him. To point us to his great, unfathomable love for his church. So that's the first thing that I realized. The second thing, once once I got over that, I began to, things just began to click. Began to understand the implications of this. If it is true that sex points us to God, that is uh, an image of God and his union with his church, then no wonder God has such high standards for sex. No wonder that he has such high expectations for how we handle ourselves physically. 
because it directly and indirectly reflects on his relationship with his church. Friends, you have been bought with a price. You've been bought with a price, and therefore your bodies belong to God. Your sexuality matters to God, not because of us. I think a lot of times there are Christian arguments out there that are used to say, well, you shouldn't uh, look at at porn because it's so devastating and destructive. That's true. You shouldn't have sex before marriage because you can get an STD or you can get pregnant or, or things like that. And that's true. But those arguments are focusing on us. The real reason why God cares about the way that we behave and hold ourselves sexually is because it reflects on him. It's ultimately about him. Next thing. uh, We see that we are guaranteed resurrection bodies. We're guaranteed resurrection bodies. This will be a, a short one. Take a look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. You know what another implication of us being bought with a price? is that we will receive and are guaranteed physical, earthly, resurrection bodies. Christ laid down his physical body so that we also would be raised with a physical body ourselves in the new heavens and the new earth. This is a crucial understanding in our battle against sexual sin, to understand that our body matters to God, that we cannot separate the physical from the spiritual, that God deeply cares about our physical bodies, so much so that he died in his physical body to give us new physical bodies in the life to come. Friends, you are guaranteed a resurrected body. Next, we are united with Christ. We are united with Christ. Take a look at verses 15 through 17. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. If everything that that we talked about just a moment ago about how sex points us to God and reflects upon God's union with his church, if all that is true, then it is absolutely unthinkable to commit sexual sin. Absolutely unthinkable to commit sexual sin. Because it portrays God poorly. A few years ago, I went back to my hometown uh, to watch a high school theater production uh, that the high school was putting on there. And it was a little special for me because I was in the production when I was in high school. So I knew the the play well. I I knew what it was supposed to be like. I knew how it was going to end. And, And when you're in a play, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to remain faithful to the script. It's someone else's story. It's not your story. You're just acting out that story. Your job is to follow the script and do as best of a job as you can. But as I was watching this production, I noticed something that one of the actors at the very end of the production decided to take things off book, decided to go off script, and he completely changed the ending. It was terrible. It was just awful. The original ending was brilliant, and this self-important person decided to take that beautiful, perfect ending that was funny, that was classy, that was clean, and he ruined it, made it something completely different. 
And I asked myself, was he doing his job? Absolutely not. He was taking something that was good and he was ruining it by his own plan. And I think that that's a bit what sexual sin is like. It's going off book, going off script of God's original plan, God's original story. You know why God cares so much and so deeply about sexuality? It's because it it portrays him to those who are around us. I want to ask a question. When was the last time that you saw God neglect his bride, the church, so he could sneak a peek at someone else? Never. That's why God is against porn and lust. Yes, it's because it's damaging and hurtful, but because it poorly portrays him and his love for his church. This is why God is against premarital sex. Yes, it's damaging. Yes, it's hurtful. But last time I checked, Jesus remained sinless and spotless so he could lay down his life to win his bride. So his bride could be bought with a price. This is why God is against any sexual sin because it reflects poorly on his relationship with his people, on his union with his people. Friends, we have been bought with a price, and so we have to ask ourselves, are we doing a good job of modeling Christ and his church? The responsibility that God has given us is unfathomably high, that he has entrusted us with such a high and noble task. So ask yourself, men, are you lusting after other brides, or are you remaining faithful like Christ was to his church Women, ask yourself, are you remaining pure and spotless like Christ desires his church to be? Or are you chasing after other lovers? Friends, we have been bought with a price. Because of that, our sexuality matters to God. It's because of this, we look at the next one, it's this. uh, We flee immorality. We flee immorality. Take a look at verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. See, if Christ's relationship with the church is our model for sexuality, we have to ask ourselves, how did Christ handle temptation? When we're faced with temptation, how did Christ handle it? Did he get as close to the edge as possible without sinning? Did he embrace it? No. If we look at the Lord's Prayer, we see that he prays, lead us not into temptation. He doesn't pray, get me as close to the edge without falling. It's because of this, in our desire to honor Christ, that we are not passive in our, in our defense against sexual immorality, but instead we flee from it. We have nothing to do even with the appearance of it. Friends, you have been bought with a price, and so flee sexual immorality. And the final one is this, you are not your own. You are not your own. That's really what all this boils down to. It's what the focus of this passage is. If you were a little uncomfortable as we were talking about these things, uh, I get that. I can sympathize with that. But don't miss the key point here at the end of this passage. You are not your own. Take a look at verses 19 and 20. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God 
in your body. Your spirituality is a physical spirituality. It is ultimately a call for us to die to self. That's not me saying that sex is bad. Again, God created it. He created it good. It's a call to die to self, to our sinful passions and our sinful desires. It's a call to repentance. It's a call to purity. It's a call to ultimately model Christ and his church. It doesn't matter whatever situation of life you find yourself in. These two verses, verses 19 and verse 20, they are the heart of a Christian sexual ethic. You are not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Friends, you've been bought with a price. The price that God paid for you was unfathomably high. And he purchased you, not just your soul, but every single part of you, including your body, to follow him, to love him. And he purchased you through his blood. So why would you live in a way that dishonors him with your body? Glorify God in your body. That's the call of the Christian's life. Not just through your words or or through your actions, but with your body. How you steward your body. How you protect your body. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. So therefore live holy lives. Yes, there are practical benefits to that, but even more so, it is an opportunity for us to model Christ to our spouse, model Christ to our children. If you're not married, it is an opportunity for you to model Christ to those who are around you, to your future spouse by the way you behave right now, because you have bought with a price. If you were to sum up this entire text and just one phrase, I think it would be this. Your physical nature is not about you, but it is ultimately meant to point to Jesus. Your physical nature, your desires, your passions, what you want in life, it's not ultimately about you. It's given to you to point others to Jesus. That's true whatever season of life you are in, whether you're married or whether you're not. If you're married, the call of this passage is clear. It is a call for you to remain faithful and to remain committed to your spouse, just as Christ is to his church. If you are single, this is a call for you to remain pure, remain spotless, just as Christ did before he was married to his church. And if you are engaged or, or if you're dating someone, and just, just a side note, uh, it, it, there's, there's so much more that I could say on those topics. Uh, I really encourage you to just get on the internet and listen to Pastor Kurt's sermon on this because he focuses a lot on dating and what exactly that even means. I, I really encourage you from our Spirit Lake campus to check it out. It's really wonderful. I uh, would love for you to take a look at that. But if you are in that sort of relationship, you have the opportunity to lay the foundation to model Christ and his church to others and to your future spouse. Friends, your physical nature is not about you, but it has been given to you to point others to Jesus. 
One thing as we close. If you failed in this area, and, and I would venture that all of us have probably failed to one degree or another in this, in this area, there's good news. We've been talking a lot about the fact that we've been bought with a price and how that is a, a, a commitment to a higher calling in our lives. But it also means something else. When we say that we have been bought with a price, that means that we have been offered grace. We have been forgiven in spite of everything that we have done. Because we are bought with a price, we have been made new at the Christ or at the cross through Christ for the price that was paid for us was great. So don't come away from this message thinking that you are condemned, but rather come away from this message feeling grateful. I love this passage from Revelation. It says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and people and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? I said to him, sir, you know. And he said to me, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. I love that imagery. We see at the end of Revelation, the the revelation culminates with this great wedding between Christ and his church. And this imagery here is of a bride on her wedding day, dressed in her, her wedding dress, and her dress is torn, it's dirty, it's disgusting. And yet her groom comes, and he cleans her up, and purifies her. If you feel torn over what you've done in the past, if you feel dirty over what you've done in the past, if you feel disgusting for the things that you've done in your past, the good news of this passage is that you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. God, I thank you that we have been bought with a price. We ask for forgiveness for the fact that it was even necessary for you to go to the cross. And yet, God, we are so, so grateful that in our torn, dirty, disgusting clothes, you have washed them white as snow in the blood of the Lamb. Thank you, God. God, I pray that you would help us to live lives worthy of the calling that you have placed on us so we can reflect you and we can reflect your church. Give us the strength to do so. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 
This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.